So we are in a series through the parables, and it's actually the final week of the parables. So if you have a Bible, we're going to pick up right where we left off last week in Matthew 25. So if you want to turn to Matthew 25, we will get started. Matthew 25, verse 31. I don't know if I put verse 1 or 31 on the slide. 31, yeah, I did it right. Woo! So just a bit of context as we're about to read this passage. Uh, Jesus is speaking here, and he's responding to a question that the disciples have asked. Uh, Just a few uh, chapters earlier, in, in chapter 24, the disciples asked Jesus, what's going to be the sign of the end of the age? Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple, and then they ask, the disciples ask, what's going to be the sign of the end of the age? And over the course of those two chapters, Jesus responds to that question and really gives an explanation of what the disciples should do in the meantime, what they should do while they're waiting for that day. And then in verse 31, we have uh, the final parable in our series as Jesus closes out his teaching, as he closes out his discourse. And he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. A lot going on here. So, Jesus, like I said, is continuing on in this teaching about a response to the disciples' question. What, what's going to be the sign of the end of the age? And Jesus then elaborates and explains what that's going to be like. And the parables we've read uh, last week were in part uh, the response to that question. And then we pick up again as Jesus closes out his response to that question with what he says here in verse 31 through 46. And for context, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, which is right outside Jerusalem. And it's just a couple days before the Passover celebration and just a couple days before Jesus is going to be betrayed and then killed. And what Jesus is doing, as he does over and over again in the parables, is uses common imagery 
that um, the people would have understood. So as they're on the Mount of Olives, there very well might have been sheep and goats around because it's an agrarian society. And so what Jesus does over and over again in the parables is use its common imagery to communicate a really deep or profound truth. I grew up in Los Angeles, and there's not a whole lot of sheep or goats. And so I tried to, tried to figure out what would you do to separate sheep and goats because that would probably be really difficult, right? I don't know if anyone here has ever been a, like a herds person, but <laughs> you, you can imagine like a, a mass of sheep and goats and trying to chase them and like separate them into two groups. It would be probably really difficult. So I looked it up on YouTube, still done today. And you can do it, especially because sheep and goats come to understand um, who their like shepherd is, which is helpful for a lot of biblical imagery. But uh, in the ancient Near East, it was really common to have sheep and goats uh, grazed together. You would just put them in one large mass because sheep want to eat grass and goats will literally eat anything. And so you graze them together for the day and at the end of the night you would come and you would separate the sheep and the goats into two different groups to sleep. Or if you had a really big uh, herd, you might keep them together for a long period of time and then when it came time to shear the sheep to get the wool off them, you would separate them at that point because you can't shear goats. So this imagery of like a shepherd separating sheep and goats is, is something that the people would have understood. And sheep and goats were really um, common in the ancient Near East, as they are today. So much so that the Sumerian language had 200 words for sheep. It's, I looked it up. It's really interesting. So one of, one of the things you can do on your way home today is try and think of 200 like, synonyms for sheep. Think of like woolly little cattle like try and come up with other names for what you would call a sheep because that's how much these people thought about sheep and goats. So Jesus uses this really common image to explain something really deep. One bit of context that I think we need to understand in order to understand what, Ma- what Jesus is doing in Matthew 25 is having some biblical context. Because when Jesus teaches an audience, he's using imagery and using references to, to Scripture that both he understands because he's a trained teacher, but also his audience gets. But sometimes there are things that we don't necessarily get. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn back to Ezekiel chapter 34. And if you're new to the Bible or you're like, hey, I don't even know where Ezekiel is, it's about three quarters of the way through your Bible. If you get to Isaiah and Jeremiah, you're close. Just go to the right a little bit. So Ezekiel chapter 34. And as we turn there, uh, what you might have heard a couple weeks ago is, as uh, Matt Deason was teaching on the parable of the vineyard workers um, is that God often used common imagery throughout the Old Testament to refer to his people. So one of those images was that of a vineyard and a landowner. So uh, one of the parables that we read was about how God is this landowner and he has vineyard workers and God, the, the vineyard owner, then sends his son to engage with the vineyard workers. That's a common image used throughout the Old Testament. But another really common image throughout the Old Testament is that of God as the shepherd and his people as his flock. So you would see that in uh, Psalm 100. You'd see that in Psalm 23, which is what we sang earlier. God is a shepherd and his people are like his flock, are like his sheep. But there's also a sense in which God's leaders, the leaders in charge of Israel, were like shepherds as well. In Psalm 78, there's this uh, reference to David, who was a king, being the shepherd of God's people, Israel. And so that, and that imagery of God as a shepherd or leaders as shepherds, that, that's something that's picked up throughout the New Testament as well. But that's, 
backdrop to what we're going to read here in Ezekiel 34. Because as Ezekiel is talking to shepherds, he's talking to leaders in Israel. So in Ezekiel 34 verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. That's against the leaders. Prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, you clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays, or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So what God is saying through Ezekiel to the leaders is not only, hey, you guys have done a really bad job of leading, but you've been outright corrupt. You've treated yourselves well, you've clothed yourselves, you've thrown great banquets with meat, but you haven't taken care of the sick, you haven't even bothered to search for the sheep who've wandered off, you've actually treated them harshly and brutally. And, and so in response to what the leaders have done, God promises in verse 10 something he's going to do in response. So if we skip down to verse 10, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. So what's going on here is God pronounces judgment over the leaders of Israel for what they've failed to do and how they've ruled corruptly and then promises that he's going to step into the story. He promises in verse 16 later on, he says, I will shepherd the flock with justice. So God goes on to say in this passage in Ezekiel that he's going to do all the things for Israel that the leaders have failed to do. He's going to care for the sheep. He's going to heal the sheep. He's going to protect the sheep. He's going to search for lost sheep. And God is going to enter into the story and become their shepherd. Where am I going with this? I want you to notice a few things about this imagery and this language and how it compares to what's going on in Matthew 25. And I have a really, really small print slide. So if you can read it, I am very impressed with your eyesight. But what's going on here, um, some of the things are, are bolded if you can read it. Maybe if you're in the front row, you can. Uh, but what you can see in the comparison between the two passages is a lot of common language. So in Ezekiel, God speaks to Ezekiel calling him son of man, which is this title given to a lot of the prophets, and it's really just God pointing out that they're humans, that they're sons of humans. And so God, in, in Ezekiel 34, speaks to the son of man and tells him to rebuke the religious leaders because they failed to care for, feed, strengthen, heal the sheep. And they clothe themselves instead. And so in response, God's going to come himself and become the shepherd and do all the things that the religious leaders have failed to do. So interestingly, if we were to read on, which is this bottom passage in verse 20, we see this. this Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. So he's going to judge between different sheep. Because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you've driven them away. I will save my flock, and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David. He will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. 
I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of savage beasts so that they may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forests in safety. So there's a lot going on here as well. But did you catch some unique things? God says he is going to judge between the flock. He's going to split between fat sheep and lean sheep. And David is going to be the shepherd. So here's a quick Bible question. Where is David when Ezekiel is saying this? Anyone know? He's been dead for 450 years. So what is Ezekiel talking about? If David's dead for 450 years, how is God promising that David is going to shepherd the people of Israel? What we see over and over again in the Old Testament is this promise of a leader from the family line of David to come and rule, and in this case, shepherd the people Israel. And if you've been around here for a while, you'll have heard us reference this Messiah. There's this promise about a leader who's going to come and, and lead Israel, God's people, and that occurs over and over and over again throughout the Jewish scriptures. But what about verse 16, where God says, I will shepherd the flock with justice. I thought God was going to be the shepherd. So is it God or is it David who is going to shepherd, the, the leader from the line of David? So you kind of see where we're going with this. Ezekiel is about 570 years before Jesus. But all of these promises that God gives to Ezekiel, they come together and they're, they find their fulfillment in Jesus, in Jesus' life and ministry and his death and his resurrection. There's all these parallels and connections And then there's implications for those things. Because in Matthew 25, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. And he calls himself the King. He talks about how he is the one who's on the end of the age judgment seat. So who is the shepherd? Is it God or is it David's Messiah? Well, yeah, it's both. And and who is the one separating the sheep? Is it the Son of Man or is it God? Well, yeah, it's both. Especially at this point in his ministry, Jesus is just blatantly saying, here I am, I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm here. I am the Davidic ruler promise. I am God come to shepherd my people. And I've come to shepherd rightly. I'm the good shepherd. I'm here to to care for and heal and bind up and set free and search for. I am here. That's what Jesus is saying in Matthew 25. And how does God's flock respond? Well, just a few days later, they they put Jesus to death. They recommend him to be crucified for talking like that, for blasphemy. So one of the takeaways from this text this morning, I want all of us to get, is simply how powerful Jesus' statement is about who he is claiming to be. He calls himself the king. He calls himself the judge. And he uses language like the prophets did. So Jesus is this like final and full prophet. And he's a king. He's fulfilling the promises that that God made about how he himself would come to shepherd the people. And how he would come to judge and split the flock. So with that as a background, let's talk about the elephant in the room. Which is this passage. Because... Even as we read it, if you're anything like me, anytime you hear these words, you kind of go back to like all the other times you've heard words like this referenced. So when Jesus judges the sheep and the goats based on how they've treated the hungry and the thirsty and the stranger and those needing clothes and the sick and the imprisoned, 
I'm sure all kinds of feelings and emotions come to mind. And we should talk about that. Jesus is not the first person in Scripture to address these issues. In Isaiah 58, we could turn back in our Bibles and we could, we could read there where Isaiah, who's another prophet, he accuses the, the, the people of God of abstaining from food, of doing this religious act and yet still participating in injustice. And he says this to them. He says, is not this, God says through Isaiah, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. So Isaiah, that's one place in scripture where these issues come up. But where are some other places in Scripture that these themes show up? Ezekiel 34 is one place, right? All the passage, the passage we just read, God judges the leaders based on how they failed to feed the sheep, take care of the sheep, how they clothed themselves, and didn't take care of the sick or the wounded. Elsewhere in Scripture, we, we could read, like in Psalm 146, how God is the one who actually cares about these things. In Psalm 146, we read, He upholds, that's God, the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. But he frustrates the way of the wicked. So do you see some themes developing throughout these passages, some common threads when we look at how God speaks to and critiques and evaluates his people? Because God cares about the oppressed. He cares about the hungry. He cares about the sick. He cares about the stranger. He cares about the foreigner. He cares about the orphan. He cares about the widow. He cares about the vulnerable. Over and over and over again in scripture, God demonstrates that he cares deeply about these things. And the implication is his community ought to as well. In Matthew 25, Jesus evaluates the sheep and the goats based on how they did this. And God cares about things, and the question is, have his people. Sadly, it seems like more often than not, we haven't even remotely cared about the same things that God cares about. And I'm I'm just as guilty as anyone else. Now, it's been really interesting this past two weeks as I've prepared for this because I read this text and I, and I have this intense, in, intense feeling of as soon as I talk about this, I feel like a huge hypocrite, right? Because I'm, I'm reading these things and say, like, well, this is what's in Scripture and I've got to wrestle with it. But I, I know I don't do, I, I, know I, I, I know that I don't do that fully. And, and so I, I have to wrestle with Jesus' words, which are, which are really challenging and, and I think there's some really practical things that we can do as an outlet and, and with those, those emotions that we have when we read a text like this. And so as we circle back to it at the end, hopefully there's some practical outlets that we have for what we do in response. But this passage also has been really interesting because there's actually debate about how to interpret it. And there's, there's kind of two, two really common readings that I want to talk about and address. Uh, one option Um, stems from the fact that we want to know who is Jesus talking about. In Matthew 25, Jesus says, whatever you've done to the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you've done for me. 
And the logical question is, well, who are the least of these brothers and sisters of mine? Is it like everyone in the whole world? And in one reading, uh, they would point out that in Matthew 12, Jesus gives an explicit interpretation of who are his brothers and sisters. So in Matthew 12, Jesus' mother and his brothers, his half-brothers, come and they, they want to talk to him. And Jesus says this in response in, in Matthew 12, 49. Pointing at his disciples, he says, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so, since Jesus gives us this explicit example of who are his brothers and sisters, one reading would say what Jesus is evaluating us on is how we treat other Christians particularly needy Christians. That, that's one common reading. Another common reading uh, addresses a totally different fact, which is how in this kind of judgment scene, Jesus doesn't even address faith. He doesn't address belief. He doesn't address sin. He doesn't address forgiveness at all. And so one reading of the text would say, see, Jesus doesn't even care what you believe. All he cares about is how you care for the poor and the needy. And, and if you do that enough, then you'll receive eternal life. And these people don't even recognize Jesus in their service, and so it's not even an explicitly Christian thing. It's just doing good. That's another common reading. And, and I'm assuming that you can tell, based on my tone, is, is that we don't actually believe that either one of those options is 100% right. We think there's really good things in both, but I think there's another way to read this text more accurately uh, and and that's what I kind of want to spend the next little bit talking about. What, what I think both common interpretations miss is the overall context of what Jesus is, uh, where Jesus lives. So if you were to only read the Gospel of Matthew or you were to only read this passage, those interpretations might, might be really easy to come by. But in the context of all of Scripture, it, it's a little bit harder to come to that understanding. And, and what we want is to have an understanding of Jesus which fits in within his cultural, his historical, and his religious context. Because, like I said before, Jesus isn't some guy who just speaks 30 words at a time, but he's a teacher who has an understanding and lives in a tradition, and then he's speaking to an audience who also knows that tradition. So here it goes. Here's like the option C. At the very base level, at the very bare minimum, this passage refers to how we treat other Christians? Should we care for the needy? Should we care for the hungry, the thirsty, the sick, the troubled, in prison, especially if they're brothers and sisters in Christ? Absolutely. 100%. If someone in this room is hungry or thirsty or in need of clothing or shelter, shouldn't we be anxious to help them? Yeah. I mean, how could you possibly read this text and be like, no, that's not my problem? Should we care for brothers and sisters around the world uh, who are in places going through terrible problems, like, like in Burundi or Nigeria or Syria or Palestine, if they're brothers and sisters in Christ? How could you possibly read this text and be like, nope, that has nothing to do with me? Should, should I clothe and care for and welcome in strangers who are brothers and sisters in Christ, even if they're not American citizens? How could you possibly read this text and say no? What if Jesus had said it this way? For I was hungry while you had all you needed. I was thirsty, but you drank bottled water. I was a stranger, and you wanted me deported. I needed clothes, but you needed more clothes. I was sick, 
and you pointed out the behaviors that led to my sickness. I was in prison, and you said I was getting what I deserved. That paraphrase comes from Richard Stearns, who's the president of World Vision U.S., And I think it makes Jesus' words really poignant for us today because it kind of makes it really, really obvious. At the very bare minimum, at the very base level, Jesus is commending to his disciples that you should treat one another like you would treat your blood relatives in an ideal situation. You are brothers and sisters in Christ. You are family. You're not earning your way into family by by doing this, but you're living out an identity that God has given to you. So I think at the very bare minimum, that's what Jesus is talking about. But I think it's clear in the rest of Scripture that God's concern for the poor and the needy and, and, and those who he's referenced here in Matthew 25, that care for those people is not based on their disposition towards God. And the expectation that we should imitate God's care is not based on those people's disposition towards God. And and I think that's why option B helps pull us in the right direction. The problem that we have with with option B in that kind of um, option A, B thing is, is that that reading essentially says by doing enough good deeds, Jesus will welcome us into eternal life. And the problem with that is that it ignores the overriding themes of the rest of Scripture and the dozens of explicit passages of Scripture that speak of the need for forgiveness, the need for atonement, the need for Jesus to go to the cross, and how faith and allegiance and trust in Jesus is the means by which we're saved. If we viewed Matthew 25 just on its own, then that interpretation that, hey, we should just like, do good things and that's all that matters, if you were to only read that passage, well then, yeah, it kind of makes sense. But in light of everything else in scripture, we can't possibly say that Jesus is communicating that judgment is purely about good deeds to the poor. But as soon as I say that, some of us breathe this sigh of relief as if that means that God doesn't care how we care for the poor or the hungry or the stranger or the sick or the hurting. But that's just plain not true. Reading our Bibles as a whole, we see what sort of conduct God expects of us especially in our disposition towards those in need, the hungry, the hurting, the needy, no matter what their disposition towards God is. Historically, this is why Christians and churches are the ones who found orphanages and build schools and build hospitals. That's why followers of Jesus are the ones who traditionally are the ones who dig wells for people who don't have clean water. That's why followers of Jesus are the ones who open up their homes to welcome in strangers That's why followers of Jesus feed the hungry and give drinks to the thirsty and companionship to the lonely and advocate for the oppressed. And why? Because we have to? Because we should? Or because we're afraid that we'll go to hell if we don't? No. And this is the absolute key. It's not any of those reasons. We engage in these sorts of acts because this is where God is. God is the one who first cares for the oppressed, as we read in that psalm. God is the one who feeds the hungry and cares for the strangers. Just stop and think how God has done this for you. So you may not think of yourself as physically hungry or physically thirsty or physically a stranger, but spiritually you were, and you might still be. But 
God has met you in that. He has fed you. He's provided for you. You, who were once a stranger, has been welcomed into the family of God. God has done this for you. So it's a natural outflowing of that, which is why we turn around and do the same for others. But what is unique about this passage in Matthew 25 is what Jesus adds. What's unique about this passage from all the other passages in Scripture about dealing with social justice and these issues is what Jesus adds. What's mind-blowing is that beyond caring for, for the sorts of people that God does, which is good motivation, is that Jesus makes it clear that by some mystery, as we serve that stranger, we're serving him. Jesus is saying, by doing these things, you are intimately connecting with him in the midst of it. So when the sheep hear that they fed Jesus or cared for Jesus or provided clothing for him, they say, when did we ever do that for you? And he says, remember when you did that for the, for the guy under the bridge? You did that for me. And remember when you did it for the, the little boy that you met in the park? You did that for me. And remember when you sent funds to your friends who were running out of money to pay rent? You did that for me. Remember when you welcomed in the stranger? You welcomed me. So where does that leave us? I mean, what do we do with that? If you're anything like me, in reading this passage, you're like, wow, I got a lot, I got a lot of room to grow. Well, I wanted to avoid like the three-point sermon, and I originally had two, but it, it works out to be three practical takeaways. Just like training that you get in seminary, just every sermon's got to have three points. It's not true, but it just ends up working that way. Thank you, Tracy. First, I, I would love it if we would all let Jesus' words ruminate in our hearts. If we could meditate on Jesus' words beyond today. Like if going home in the, in, in the day ahead or if in the week ahead, that you would read back through this passage and think through and pray through this passage. And, and what I mean by that is in reading it, just ask God, who is the hungry? Who is the thirsty? Where are the strangers? Who needs clothes? As you just read through, go line by line and say, say Jesus, where do your words intersect with my life? Too often, what happens is we're affected or encouraged by, by words that we hear, and then we just walk away unchanged. But we want to be disciples of Jesus. We want, we want to hear from him, we want to learn from him, and we want to learn to become more and more like him. So that's the first takeaway. The second takeaway uh, is that we have avenues to give and serve in these ways, but we want more. You may not know this, um, but if, whenever you give to River's Edge, 10% of every dollar gets set aside for what we call Hear the Cry, which uh, is, is all of the work that we do with the poor, the orphan, the widow, strangers. Those Hear the Cry funds uh, are what fund what we're doing with refugee resettlement, with uh, summer soccer. They're also going to help fund some barbecues for the Youth for Christ building, which is that direction, like three blocks. There's ways that you can give and serve, and, and we as a church want to grow in how we do that. Uh, these are the sorts of things that we're involved in around the world, in the Philippines, and South Africa. You are already participating in those things. But as a church, we want to grow more and more in that. We want more opportunities. We want to we engage with those issues more and more. And we want our missional communities to engage with them more and more. We want missional communities to grow in how they engage with these topics and these issues and the people facing these issues. And if I say missional communities, you're like, hey, what is that? 
We're going to talk about missional communities more and more as we head towards the fall because the hope is that we can launch a few more. Um, But if you're interested in learning more about them today, just pull me aside afterwards and I can help you get connected in. Lastly, um, this text, I think, helps us understand communion and the table in, in a really profound way. We come to the table because, in part, it's a physical representation of how God, this, God has already done this for you, how, how he feeds your hungry souls, how he quenches our thirst in the bread and the cup. And so this drives us to the table. For some of us, God has physically provided food or drink for us when we were hungry or thirsty. Some, for some of us, that's really what's happened. For some of us, God has, has changed us from being physical strangers to providing friends for us and welcoming us into a community. For some of us, God has physically healed us when we were sick or hurting. But for all of us, God has done this on, on the deepest levels of our being in unseen ways. Jesus has fed and nourished you. And we come to the table and we come to him every single week because we're still hungry and because we're still thirsty. We need the cup because we're still hungry for him. We need the bread because we're still hungry for him. We need the cup because we're still thirsty. And we're welcomed in. We once were strangers, but now we're welcomed in as family at a feast. That's the imagery that we get to engage with every time we come to the communion table. But ironically, when we come to the table, that then propels us back out the doors. Because when we receive and we meet God here at the table— We also meet him in doing the work of providing food and drink and welcoming in strangers when we go back out the doors. Every time we do for others what God has done for us in and through Jesus. And so the table is this beautiful focal point where we get to come and we receive from God and we and we we remind ourselves of what he's done for us, but it also motivates us to then go back out the doors and do the same sorts of things because we not only meet God here but we meet God in that stranger. Let's pray. Jesus, these uh, words of yours are extremely convicting. Um, Sometimes we can feel guilt, um, but we know that's not from you because you are a comforter. And you have come to wash us and you have died for the sin of all the ways that we have failed at doing this. And, and we know that we're forgiven, which is amazing news. And so even as we come to the table today, I pray that you would remind us of that, that instead of that, that feeling of, of guilt, of I haven't done this well enough, that God, you would instead change that into a sense of conviction, that we would, we would be motivated, not just out of a sense of, oh, we ought to be doing that, but out of a commitment and an idea that we are going to meet you in the midst of it. That when we engage with these things, we are missing out if we don't do them because we're missing out on meeting you and the stranger. And so God, as we come to the table, would you remind us of our forgiveness? Would you remind us of our calling? And as we meet with you, God, would you then propel us back out the doors to do do the same sorts of things that you have done for us in and through Jesus? Amen.